Just a little update. This morning I asked you to pray and we prayed together for uh, Pastor James Coates of uh, Grace Life Church of Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, pretty close to uh, Darren's old stomping grounds in Calgary. But um, they met this morning uh, against the mandate of the government. They had government officials in the congregation, law enforcement. And the church stood up and gave law enforcement a standing ovation for their work. Uh, talk about heaping burning coals. Uh, that's, that's the way to do it. And so, Pastor James, if you ever see this, you stay the course. You be faithful. Turn with me to Judges 13. Judges 13. Now, you may not know Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, but you've heard of their creation in June of 1938, in Action Comics number one, they introduced the new comic character. He comes from a dying planet called Krypton. The scientists Jor-El and Laura-El place their infant son Kal-El into a rocket headed for Earth. And he's found by Martha and Jonathan Kent, a gentle couple from the Midwestern town of Smallville, they name the child Clark and raise him as, her own and, as their own. And even as a child, then Clark, as somebody from a different planet, exhibits a collection of superhuman powers, invulnerability, and incredible strength, the ability to leap incredible distances, and super speed. And these abilities would later highlight his alter ego, Superman, the Man of Steel. Superman was a hit in 1938 and in 1939. Because our nation was in the depths of the Great Depression. It gave a fantasy escape to adults and children alike who were encouraged by the thought of one man who could come and save the day from evil and oppression. And while Superman, created by Siegel and Schuster, is pure fantasy which provided hope and escape to a generation living under the weight of economic hardship and, by the way, the growing threat of Nazism and fascism in Europe... There was, in Israel's history, a time when God sent somewhat of a real-life Superman. He was empowered not by galactic abilities, but by the very Spirit of God Himself. And He was empowered for the purpose of relieving the oppression of God's people that they were experiencing from the Philistine peoples who were plaguing and harassing them. Now, we've been in Judges for a couple of weeks now, and you recall from last time that the major theme of the book of Judges is Israel's continual failure to live up to their covenant obligations to God. They have now turned to idols, to Baal and Ashtoreth worship, and as a result, God would turn them over to the oppression of neighboring peoples. Peoples Israel was supposed to have destroyed and driven out at the conquest. Then they would cry out to God for help, maybe not full-on repentance, but at least a cry to the one true living God, a reluctant homecoming of sorts. And God would send a rescuer, a judge of Israel to relieve their burden and Israel would enjoy peace for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Then the judge dies and the cycle starts all over again. And so this cycle happens six times in the book of Judges. Some scholars feel it happens seven. The, the number doesn't matter. The cycle is what's important. And once again, we see the appearance of the angel of the Lord coming to Israel in what we've called in this series, Backstage Before Bethlehem, a pre-birth appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the angel of the Lord is going to do something marvelous for Israel, who's being oppressed by the infamous Philistines. The angel of the Lord will provide a hero for Israel, a hero named Samson. Samson won't be a perfect hero. In fact, the story of Samson is colored with his moral failures. It's profusely part of the story. Last time we saw that Gideon was the hero of the story. He became enamored with glory. Samson's failure is that he is enamored with women, that he can't stop his own desires. And yet, as you read the story of Samson, you read all of his failures, while they do provide lessons and warnings to us, they don't really form the main point of the story. The main point of the story of Samson is not to provide warnings about sin, although that can be an application. As a matter of fact, God uses Samson's proclivity for making really bad decisions concerning women. He uses it for his own larger purposes. So if I could put it this way, Samson isn't here to provide Israel with an example of virtue and godliness, Although that would have been nice, would have been a nice bonus. 
Samson is here to show God's grace to Israel by humiliating her enemies. That's what Samson was there for, to humiliate and kill the enemies of God. Now, the story of Samson has some of the most odd and even humorous stories in all of the Bible, things we've never seen in any other book anywhere. Even in the midst of the seriousness of Israel's oppression by the Philistines, the deaths of many thousands of Philistines, bloodshed on a massive level in this story, there are moments that are meant to make you chuckle. You're not supposed to suppress the the laughter. You're supposed to say, this is really funny. And there's a purpose behind that, which we're going to see. And so because of this, we really have to classify this story with the term that TV critics coined in the late 1980s for shows which combined a serious theme and comedic elements. They coined the term a dramedy, a drama which contains comedy. And so that's really what the story of Samson is. We'll call this dramedy the hero of Israel, the hero of Israel. And we're going to divide this into four episodes. So maybe this is kind of a mini series. Episode one in the hero of Israel, we'll call God's grace. This is God's grace. Chapter 13, verse one. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Once again, we see Israel turning away from their covenant obligations to God. And once again, God gives them over to oppression by the Philistines for 40 years. Let me put it this way. An entire generation grew up in what was essentially a war zone with continual raids and fear and fighting. Now, who are the Philistines? I think it's helpful to understand this people. They they weren't just a few little tribes here and there. This was a serious major power. The Philistines were a people who originally immigrated from southern Greece to the coastal regions of Canaan. They came in several waves with other peoples, sometimes nicknamed the Sea Peoples because they came by way of the Mediterranean Sea. At times in their history, they were extremely powerful. Archaeology suggests that it's even possible that the Philistines were responsible for the downfall, the ultimate downfall of the Hittite Empire And at one time, the Philistines even attempted an invasion of Egypt itself when Egypt was at the height of its power. During the time of the judges and then the kings of Israel, the Philistines occupied five major cities, sometimes called the Pentopolis, not the Metropolis, but Pentopolis, Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. These five major cities formed this this nation. And for their entire history, they're always a thorn in the side of God's people. You can go out on the streets of Bakersfield, California, and ask anybody, who do you think the Philistines are? And most people know, I I think those were the people that didn't like Israel or something like that. They're the classic enemy of Israel. The Philistines are in the Old Testament what the Pharisees are in the New Testament. Kind of that classic enemy. The land that we now rightly call Israel has for much of history been known as Palestine. It was named by Greek writers for, guess who? The Philistines. And the Arab peoples who have traditionally occupied what we know as Israel have been designated Palestinians. So the conflict between Israel and the Philistines, Israel and the Palestinians, this has been going on at one level or another quite literally for 3,500 years. This will only be resolved by the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's another story for another day. But even now, as Israel has committed covenant treachery, they have been worshiping idols. We saw last time that the small towns in Israel had had altars to Baal and shrines to Ashtoreth. Now they're committing covenant treachery. God has disciplined them for these 40 years. And yet God in his grace will send a hero. Chapter 13, verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
The angel of the Lord immediately addresses what would have been a very tender subject to Mrs. Manoah. We're not told her name, just that she's married to Manoah. And that is the fact that she is unable to have children. In her time and for women of all times, that has been a tender and difficult trial. But in a culture where the primary worth of a woman was measured by her children, her life was an absolute life of suffering. But now she's going to have a son by the power of God, and the son was to be a Nazarite. And he would begin to save Israel from the Philistines. It's a limited role, but it would be important nonetheless. The vow of the Nazarite is found in Numbers chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but basically the Nazarite was somebody who was devoting himself to pure service to God for a set period of time, for a temporary service, and he was to abstain from several things, three in particular, and these will become important later. He was to abstain from wine or intoxicating drink, and thus uh, Mrs. Manoah is commanded, therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, even in the womb. The child was to be pure. The second abstention was the cutting of hair. You were not to cut the hair. And the third was contact with a corpse or a dead body of any kind, animal or human. So he was to abstain from intoxicating drink, from cutting his hair, and from contact with a corpse. Now, usually this was voluntary. This was a decision to dedicate oneself to the Lord in a unique way, a, a temporary time of dedication. We don't really have a, an equivalent to that, but it might be something like this, that if you decided to use a week of your vacation time to go away and simply read the Bible and pray for that whole week, that might be something similar. It was voluntary, but this instance is unique because it's this Nazarite uh, This Nazarite. Uh, classification here is divinely imposed before even the conception of the child. The vow would take effect right at the moment of Samson's conception, that even his mother was not to take the strong drink. And this was not temporary. This was to be for a lifetime. This was his entire life. Do we have, by the way, an example of a Nazarite set aside who had the long hair and who had all of these uh, abstentions who was faithful to this for an entire lifetime? We do. That is the prophet Samuel. And so Samuel would have been a great example. Samson won't be so great of an example, but he has a different purpose. Now, you notice that Manoah's wife isn't told much. She's not told how the child would begin to save Israel. She's not told of the superhuman strength that the child would have. She's just told to obey the Lord in raising this particular child, to do what's right. Now, mothers aren't generally called in Israel to raise little Nazarites. This is a unique situation. But the principle here is very clear. God has indicated to her that he had a sovereign plan. And what was mom's part? Mom's part was raise the boy right. Mom had a command from the Lord that there were certain things she was to say no to 100% of the time. In verses 6 and 7, Mrs. Manoah goes to her husband to tell him all that had happened, that this wonderful visitor um, had come. A wonderful visitor had given this message. Verse 8, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent Come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Now let me stop right there. The man who has come, we know is the angel of the Lord. Manoah doesn't know that yet. He's already given the instruction. So he doesn't need instruction. What does he want? He wants the visitor as well. In in this culture, this was fairly insulting that this man of God went to his wife and not to him. And so Manoah prays, Oh God, let this man come again. Now, Manoah's prayer was apparently not specific enough because the angel of the Lord did come again, just not to him. He came to his wife again. And this time, Mrs. Manoah, probably, I'm guessing, saying, okay, this is not good. Can you wait right here while I go get my husband? And so very graciously, she goes, hey, your prayers have been answered. He ah, must have made a mistake and he came to me instead, but he's here. And so the angel of the Lord repeated his instructions concerning the coming child to Manoah. Again, Manoah is not aware that this is the angel of the Lord at this point. But now we get a sense of the relationship that is broken between Israel and God. The broken relationship becomes very clear in verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, 
If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Now, why is this important? Manoah has just offered to share a meal with this man, with the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, I will not eat with you. I will not fellowship with you. I will not commune with you. To share a meal with somebody indicated relationship and communion. The spiritual condition of Israel and even of this family showed a broken relationship with God, a broken fellowship. And the Israelites were in no state to fellowship with the Holy One of Israel. So what had to come first? The sacrifices had to come first, even for this family. Verse 19, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. They worshiped the Lord, and based on the sacrifice that they had just made, the Lord accepted their worship. I want you to notice something here. Manoah's wife is spiritually strong, frankly, a lot stronger than Manoah. She's explaining spiritual things to him. No wonder the angel of the Lord kept appearing to her. She was a covenant keeper. She was a law keeper, individually the faith she demonstrated in god was now to be exercised by being obedient to god there is every indication that her husband and her that manoah and and his wife were 100 percent obedient to the restrictions that god had placed on the coming child they were to do the all-important task of preparing their boy for this important service to god and here comes israel's own little superman Verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. Samson is a compound word. It's the Hebrew word for sun, S-U-N, as in the bright shining sun, and then it has what's called a diminutive ending, on, and that means little son, Samson, one with sun-like strength, and so he is the little son. God has shown his grace to his wayward people. He's preparing a hero for them, someone to rescue them from their oppression. And now little son begins to grow and we see the first of several references to the spirit of God working in him. Verse 25, last verse of chapter 13. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanath Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. We see now the spirit of God. And this is a major theme in the life of Samson, that at certain points, the Spirit of God comes upon him, which is a classic ministry of the Spirit in the Old Testament to come and empower somebody for a specific task. And so that brings us very naturally to episode two in the Hero of Israel. We'll call this episode God's Laughter. God's Laughter. Now we fast forward from the time when Samson's parents had total influence over Samson, to the time when they see their influence slipping away. Those of you who have raised children all the way to adulthood, when they walk out that door, that's always when you hold your breath, isn't it? What are they going to do now? Will they act in the way that I raised them or will they go completely contrary? Well, now they see that he is going to go contrary. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, this appeal by Samson's parents is not entirely pure. There is some family pride involved here. Because you notice they didn't say intermarriage is forbidden by the Lord, according to the book of Deuteronomy. 
Notice they didn't say the Lord has called you to a special Nazarite status. They didn't remind him of that. And notice they didn't say the Lord's agenda is for you to deliver us from the Philistines, not for you to marry one of them. They didn't bring that up. But then we see God's sovereign hand in this heartbreaking disappointment. Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. What is the opportunity? Well, when you mess with sin and with sinners, you're going to get burned. And Samson is going to get burned over and over again. And every time he gets burned, he gets angry. And when he gets angry, what does he do? He decimates a bunch of Philistines. And so that's how God is going to use him. And now... Samson's going to violate his Nazarite status. And yet, once again, this is in the overall sovereign plan of God. Verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. By the way, what's one of the themes of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 8, after some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Thanks, son. Appreciate that. They didn't know. Samson has violated his Nazarite status. To touch a dead carcass was to make you unclean. It was to violate that vow. It would require sacrifice under the law of Moses to regain the right to worship God freely again. But worse than that, Samson's parents had sanctified him, set him apart, and in return, he desecrated them by giving them food that had literally come out of a dead body. But even this lion and honey incident was part of God's plan. Remember, Samson's purpose is to antagonize and begin to deliver, antagonize the Philistines and begin to deliver Israel from their oppression. Beginning in verse 10, Samson goes to his wife and had a party. This is probably the wedding itself, which would have gone on for a whole week. And he used the killing of the lion and the honey incident to form a riddle, to play a game. Verse 12, And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall... Give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that, you, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. The guests can't figure it out, so they go to Samson's bride to beg her to get information out of them. Verse 16 says, she wept over him. What is she doing? She's crying to get her way, to make him feel sorry for her. Verse 17 says, she wept before him for the entire seven days before their wedding feast. Now stop right there. What does that tell you about this woman? She cares more for her friends who are Philistines than she does for her own husband. Samson gives in and he tells her and she tells the guests immediately. That tells you what her character is like. And what was the result? Verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. He wasn't going to pay for the clothes. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. The Spirit of the Lord, once again, is fulfilling Samson's purpose. The ultimate purpose here is he went and he, he killed 30 men, 30 Philistines. This was the judgment of God upon the people that are oppressing his nation. And now Samson is so mad, so angry, he went back to his father's house. And look what his father-in-law does while Samson is gone. Verse 20, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. And when Samson 
found out, what did he do? This is the pattern. Every time he got mad, he went and took it out on the Philistines. Verse 4. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go in the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. This is a crazy picture for the ages. 150 pairs of foxes tied together, tried to run, trying to run from the fire that's tied to their tails. They're both trying to run in opposite directions. They're barking and howling and yelping and torching the grain of the Philistines. Now, uh, you have to picture this because if this picture doesn't bring a smile to your face, check your pulse. If you're watching this like a cartoon, and this is very cartoon-like, This is what's happening. Samson, you have him, call it in the middle, with these 300 foxes tied together in 150 pairs. He sets fire to all of their tails, all of the torches. Over on this side, you have all the Israelite stuff. And over on this side, you have all the Philistine stuff. He sets fire here in the middle. And as soon as the foxes are on fire, they run this way, poof, and all the Philistine stuff gets just burned up. Now, if you're the Israelites and there's grandstands set up here watching this cartoon, that is hilarious. They could have gone this way or they could have gone this way and they went this way and they just torched everything, all the crops, all the fields that belonged to the Philistines. Through Samson, God is making fools of his enemies. He's not just defeating them, he's humiliating them. Now, Israel would think this is funny. We think it's funny. I'll bet the Philistines didn't think it was funny. And they exact a cruel revenge. They come and they kill Samson's wife and her father, who had given her to another man. This displeased Samson not too much. Samson took his own revenge, but he limited it. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 7. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. In other words, I'm going to hurt you, but not very much. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. In other words, Samson probably wasn't overly sorry to see his former wife and father-in-law get what he probably thought was coming to them. But in the interest of preserving his own pride, he simply injured the men who had killed them. And then he goes and he stays in a local rocky wilderness area, likely waiting for the next move. This has been the back and forth for quite some time now. Oh, but now this thing escalates. Now this isn't a local fight with a few dozen men. Now the Philistines send an army against Samson. And the implication is, is that if they can't have Samson, they're going to attack all of Israel, just like they've been doing for the past 40 years. Chapter 15, verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. So the men of Judah went and found Samson and basically said, what have you done this time? The men of Judah told Samson, And I'm paraphrasing here. I hate to say this, but can we tie you up? Because we need to send you off to the Philistines. So Samson allowed them to tie him up on the stipulation with the promise that they wouldn't kill him themselves. And so they bound him with two brand new ropes, which would be, humanly speaking, impossible to break. And when he approached the Philistine army, they were enraged and they rushed at him with shouting. And now, once again, something completely unheard of happens. Chapter 15, verse 14 When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Samson took a fresh jawbone of a donkey, meaning it still had teeth and fur, meaning it had recently died and Samson likely ripped it off the head of the dead donkey. How, why he thought to do that, I don't know. But I will tell you this. The ancient soldier was taught from a very early age about the glories of battling one's enemies. 
Every ancient culture has their own mythology concerning the glory of the soldier who dies a valiant death in battle. In the 7th century BC, the Greek poet Tyrtaeus wrote very stirring poetry on military themes. His poems were commissioned to inspire Greek soldiers to victory. And in fact, in the Spartan Wars, Tertius was given the command of soldiers of his own because of his ability to inspire armies. For example, he wrote, Feel no fear before the multitude of men. Do not run in panic, but let each man bear his shield straight toward the four fighters, regarding his own life as hateful and holding the dark spirits of death as dear as the radiance of the sun. In other words, embrace the death, embrace the glory that's about to be yours. In contrast to this, Samson composed on the spot his own war poem, verse 16. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. Tyrtaeus, feel no fear before the multitude of men. Philistine soldier, I'm getting killed by a jawbone of a donkey? No glory in that whatsoever. As a matter of fact, Samson's victory poem is meant to be humorous. It's meant to be funny. The Hebrew word for donkey and heap of soldiers is the same word. In other words, to the Philistine soldiers laying dead at his feet in heaps, Samson is saying, who's the donkey now? Chapter 15, verse 17. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi, means jawbone hill, as a continual reminder of the humiliation of the Philistines. And picture this, the, the children of the Philistine soldiers who died there asking their mothers, asking their grandparents, how did my father die in battle? Uh, well, I hate to say this, he was killed by the jawbone of a donkey. And once again, you have this inane, unlikely situation where the hero of the story is whacking his enemies with part of a donkey's head. And once again, God humiliates his enemies as he defends his people. Now, why would we call this episode God's laughter? Because that is precisely how God responds to any enemy who thinks they can fight God. Psalm 2 The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. The lesson is very clear here. God makes fools of his enemies. They're ridiculous to stand up to him and there's no glory in doing so. Now it's very interesting to me that just this morning we talked about the fact that in Ezekiel 18 and in Ezekiel 33, God says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is this God taking pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, this is God taking pleasure in his own supreme glory. He's taking pleasure in the fact that no enemy will ever stand up to him and even come close to winning. What was the result of the Spirit of God working through Samson? Verse 20 And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is a period of peace, a period of a time of temporary relief from oppression. By the way, there's an important moment tucked away in this text, just a very brief mention right after the battle of Jawbone Hill. Verse 18, going back a couple of verses. And he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Why is this important? This is important because this is the first record of Samson calling upon the Lord. It's also important because it tells us something about Samson. He may not have been the paragon of virtue, but one thing he was not was an idolater. He worshiped the one true living God. Speaking of not being the paragon of virtue, we see God working through Samson's moral failure in the third episode. Episode three in the Hero of Israel we'll call God's Salvation. God's Salvation. Now, this is the part of Samson's story you're probably most familiar with. Chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. It's like it's just said in passing. This is just who Samson is. 
the Gazites were told, Samson has come here and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up bar and all and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. How big is this gate? Probably weighs a couple of thousand pounds. And so he's doing something superhuman here. We see Samson's immorality and yet the emphasis once again is on his feats of great strength. Carrying the city gates to the top of a hill. What does that do to the city, by the way? There's no gates. It means they're completely vulnerable to their enemies. Symbolically, God is saying, I can rip away any security you think you have in a moment. But Samson was eventually caught, like many men, by his lust for women. In this case, a beautiful Philistine woman named Delilah. The subject of even movies in Hollywood. Chapter 16, verse 4 indicates he fell in love with Delilah. And so the leadership, the lords of the Philistines, the leaders of the nation, they came to Delilah to get the secret of Samson's great strength. And so she continues to ask him, what is the secret of your strength? And he teases her numerous times with false information that doesn't work. But eventually he tells her, and this is a serious moment, chapter 16, verse 17, And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. This is him looking back at God's original purpose for him. And I I have to wonder as he sat there with this immoral woman who's trying to gain the secret of his strength. And here he is reminiscing about where he came from. I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, there it is, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that she told, he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. How do you make a man sleep on your knees? You get him drunk. Samson had now broken all three restrictions of his Nazarite status with the lion's carcass, with his drinking, and now his hair is cut. Delilah had found this Superman's kryptonite, the cutting of his hair. Now, we have to make sure and understand this. The, the cutting of his hair, his long hair rather, wasn't a magical source of strength. It wasn't some sort of magic at all. It was an outward indicator that he was serving God. And when the outward indicator was given away by him, and he gave it away, yes, she had his hair cut, but he's the one that gave it away. When the outward indicator is given away, then the internal reality goes as well. And his strength left him. Samson's ministry seems to end in failure Verse 20, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But in his humiliation, in his failure, now we have the seeds of hope. Verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. This is not about his hair. What is this about? This is the seeds of restoration. This is the seeds of him coming back. This is the seeds of him getting back to his calling, getting back to his mission, focusing on his original purpose of being the Nazarite set aside for service. Now, this part of the story, I think, is just best just to read it. Verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. 
And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison. And he entertained them, meaning just by being there. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Wow, what a story. Not only did Samson do more to damage the Philistines with this one act, he took out their entire royalty, their entire leadership, and he crippled the Philistines for years to come. Now the saga of the hero of Israel comes to an end with his family burying him. Verse 31, Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Did you notice something, by the way? He was buried with his father, not with his parents. Who was at the funeral? Mrs. Manoah. She was there. So many years earlier, the angel of the Lord had visited Samson's mother before he was born, promised her a child who would save Israel, and now she is witness to his death as well. But in his death, Samson, the hero of Israel, had accomplished God's purposes for him. But there's one last episode in the hero of Israel. Episode four in the hero of Israel we'll call God's hope. God's hope, and we have to look beyond these chapters here and look at really the whole of Scripture The story of Samson gives two important pieces of hope, not just to Israel, but to all who are in need of redemption, all who are in need of forgiveness, all who are in need of God's grace. You remember how the saga started? Chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The first important piece of hope that God gives through Samson is that Samson is a picture of Israel. Samson is a picture of Israel. Think about this. Both were born miraculously at the will of God. Both were called to a high life of separation and devotion to God. Both failed in their call of a high life of devotion and separation. Both were rash and immature. Both were drawn to foreign women. Samson drawn to Delilah and Israel to foreign gods as spiritual adultery. Both experienced the bondage and the oppression of their enemies. Both cried out to God from their oppression. Both were blinded from disobedience. Samson blinded literally by the Philistines and Israel blinded spiritually by her own sin and thus by God. Israel became so blind, so spiritually unable to see the truth that the worst thing they ever did was to crucify their own king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But God made a promise to Israel. He promised in Amos 9, verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. In the the age to come, God will restore national Israel, made up of ethnic Jews who have looked to the one that they pierced and they've mourned and acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. Why is this picture of Israel and the person of Samson so very key? Why is it so encouraging? Why is it a source of hope? God painted this portrait of Israel to show the eventual restoration and rescue of his beloved people. Yes, Samson endured great discipline, great hardship from his own sin. But in the end, he turned to the Lord. In the end, he turns to the Lord. And in the end, he's even listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. 
near the end of Hebrews 11, there's a long list of what six or seven of the heroes of the faith listed near the end of Hebrews 11, things they've done. Almost all of this long list, while attributed generally to six or seven, is actually, are actually things that Samson did. Here's what he did. He's listed as one, quote, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Some were tortured, others suffered chains and imprisonment. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so key for Israel? Why does this picture matter? Because God has given to Israel a picture of their own failures, and yet he redeemed Samson. He used him for his purposes. This is important for us too. Because as you think about yourself, you think about your own sin, from a human standpoint, it's ridiculous to think that God would save you. It's even more ridiculous to think that God would keep you saved. Because after you got saved, how did you show your gratitude? You kept on sinning. That's what we did. But could I say this? God knows what the redeemed version of yourself is going to be like. And that's how he treats you now. He will be faithful to bring that about. Romans 8.29 famously says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God knows how he will form you to be perfect, to be righteous in every way. And he treats you as such. There's a second important piece of hope that God gives through Samson, and that is that Samson is a shadow of Christ. Samson is a shadow of Christ. Now, I'm not going to say that Samson is a picture of Christ because his life isn't worth imitating in any moral sense at all. But he does serve as a shadow of Christ to show Israel and to show us our need for a Samson who will not fail at every turn. I mean, we read the story of Samson and we say, what a great story. Wouldn't it have been even better if? Samson leads us to see our need for a real hero, creates a longing for a hero of a higher order. The imperfect Samson was a child promised to his mother who witnessed the tragic death of her son. The perfect Jesus Christ was a child promised to his mother who witnessed the tragic death of her son to bear the sins of all who would believe in him. And his mother would witness his resurrection and victory over death. The imperfect Samson was given strength to effortlessly defeat the enemies of God with the strength of his own body. The perfect Jesus Christ will return to effortlessly deal with the mouths, with the enemies of God, with the word of his mouth. Zechariah 14 tells us this. The imperfect Samson cried out to God for water in exhaustion after the battle of Jawbone Hill. The perfect Jesus Christ said from the cross, I thirst so that his mouth might be hydrated to other the most important words from the cross. It is finished. The imperfect Samson stretched out his arms between two pillars and defeated God's enemies by his death. The perfect Jesus Christ stretched out his arms between two criminals and defeated God's enemy, which is death itself. The imperfect Samson was foretold to his parents by the angel of the Lord to come and save his people. The perfect Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord who would come to earth to save his people. The imperfect Samson was the little son with sun-like strength shining in Israel. The perfect Jesus Christ is the creator of the sun. And he was witnessed by the Apostle John in Revelation 1 as the one whose face was like the sun shining in full strength. Not a little sun, big sun. You see the picture? The shadow? You read Samson and you say, I like this guy, but I wish we had an improved version. And he comes in the person of Christ. You know, when Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman, one thing most people don't know about them is that they were both Jews born to immigrant families. And as a little nod to their own heritage, they gave Superman the original name Kalel, which means the voice of God in Hebrew. He cre- they created him as a somewhat messianic figure to the world at the time when the Great Depression, Nazism, fascism were all major threats. Of course, Superman is the figment of human imagination. Samson was an imperfect, very real hero who makes us long for a perfect hero. 
But Jesus Christ, the ultimate and true hero to save the world, he told us what his coming will look like. Matthew twenty four twenty seven. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And the one who is the true voice of God will return and speak his judgment. Revelation 19 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, the story of Superman is cute. The story of Samson falls short. The story of Jesus Christ is stunning because he's not just a hero who comes to do a few mighty feats of strength. He's a hero who will come to be the king of the world. That's a great hero. And think about all the kings and the governors and the rulers that we have today, all judged, all fired, all now under the thumb of Christ. All will be just, all will be right, because God will send another hero, not just to Israel, but to the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for the perfect version of Samson, We long not for the little son, but for the son of God. Lord, may he come soon. May he come and render judgment to his enemies. We thank you that you continue to give grace and to save many, many of your enemies. We thank you that you continue to transform enemies into worshipers. But there will be a day when grace comes to an end and judgment must come. And all who have come under the grace of God as those you have saved will rejoice in that day when we see the great kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords, when he comes to take his rightful place on the throne of the earth. He's already taken his place on the throne of our hearts, but we long to see him face to face. We long to see him get rid of wickedness. We long to live in the world in which good reigns and that which is right prevails. And so we would join with the Apostle John and we would pray for you to come soon, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.